You're listening to Artistic Finance, show 135. Today's show is a broadcast of the Financial Independence Book Club, brought to you in collaboration with Utopia Dreamscape. We discuss quitting a job if it's miserable, treating your art like a business, being intentional with your energy, letting go of the unhelpful familiar, associating value with what you're using money for, shifting mindset from victim mode into badass mode, combining manifestation and hard work to achieve goals. When it comes to limiting beliefs, asking yourself why you can't do something. I want to thank LDG, the Lighting Design Group, for providing swag for our attendance prizes this week. Everybody who attended will be getting an LDG hat. If you would like to attend our monthly meetup, which is free, super casual, and a way to put faces to the voices, find details for next month's book and meeting at artisticfinance.com slash book club. And now, without further ado, let's get to the show. You're listening to Artistic Finance Podcast, where your host, Ethan Steimel, interviews successful artists, leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire artists to grow their wealth. Welcome and thank you for being here for this book club that is brought to you by Utopia Dreamscape and Artistic Finance. And this week we have lighting designer Carl Faber, who is presenting and I'm just going to give a shout out to Claudia Hodgson, who has been here before also. So all of us are so thrilled that everyone is here. So I'm going to toss this over to Amy Deluxe to uh, take it away. Hi. Awesome. Thanks, everyone, for coming. Thanks for the rest of our audience guests as well. Um, I just wanted to talk a minute about the Financial Independence Book Club. Our vision is financial literacy for creatives with a mission to create a transparent forum and inclusive community to propel arts workers into financial security. That is the purpose of this book club. We are all learning together. You do not have to be a financial expert to participate. You do not have to be a financial expert to host a book club um, session. We're just all here to learn together and increase our own financial independence and financial IQ. We also are giving out prizes on this monthly uh, broadcast. So this month we have hats from LDG and we also have a $20 gift card to uh, bookshop.org. So if you want to get some of these uh, books covered for free with our gift card, you may be a prize winner today. And we also have our special host this week. Carl, oh, this month, <laughs> I'm getting ahead of myself, I'm going to turn it into a weekly. Uh, Carl Faber is here, PNW-based lighting designer for theater, musicals, dance, opera, events, and immersive experiences. Carl has a ton of incredible uh, experience from Broadway to the Portland Opera and on and on, Shakespeare, Caribbean cruises, just an incredible, incredible amount of, of stuff. And he read a book by Jen Sincero, You Are a Badass at Making Money with the rest of us this month. So I'm so excited to talk about it. We did have a little pre-show chatter. There are a couple of different opinions about this book. So I think this is going to be a really interesting conversation today. So Carl, tell us what you thought about the book. Yeah, so um, I, I'm gonna start. Uh, I'm gonna read a little something that I wrote. Um, a poem. No, I'm gonna read a, an intro that I wrote. Uh, just so I don't get lost and start rambling. But before I do that, I, I wanted to recommend for those of you who are following along this book club, 
I have found it very useful to be doing some form of active reading, um, note taking something while you're reading these books. Um, I feel like, I mean, at least when I was a kid, like I, it, it, and I was in school, there was a lot of like active reading means taking notes in the margins means like, you know, writing your thoughts in the back of the book or whatever it is. It's a lot harder to do that with electronic ebooks. And I listen to this one as an audiobook. Uh, there's a little bit more friction involved there. Um, but I, I really, find it's worthwhile to do it. Um, first of all, it was useful to me because I knew I was going to have to say something about this book. So it was helpful to take notes as I was going along, but also just for financial books generally, like there's so much content, there's so much new, probably new material for a lot of people that I really recommend that you find some, some form of note-taking as you're reading along with these books. I know it's really useful to me. I'm happy to talk about the system that I use, but I won't bore people with that right now. Um, but I, I, I find that to be a very useful practice for any sort of book, but particularly for um, these kind of like self-help books. So let me read the thing that I wrote. Oh, look, I thank you both at the beginning of what I wrote. Thanks, Amy and Ethan. Uh, I am very happy to be here today. Uh, today we're discussing uh, You Are a Badass at Making Money, uh, Master the Mindset of Wealth by Jensen Sarah. So it was written in 2017. It's her fourth book. It's the second in a series of badass-themed self-help books centered around motivation, habit cultivation, and the removal of mental obstacles in the pursuit of personal goals. Uh, Sincero is a highly regarded coach and speaker. Uh, the badass brand is very successful, and it's easy to see why. It's an empowering, compelling, action-driven, no BS approach towards your own personal transformational evolution. I personally chose to listen to the audiobook uh, that I checked out from the library, read by the author. And there's an energy and enthusiasm and a no-nonsense no attitude that she brings to the text that makes that listen really worthwhile. Uh, the text incorporates lots of motivational, adjectivey phrases and slang that I sense is intended to distinguish it from a lot of the other sort of like um, proper English-sounding financially sort of financial books that we're all used to reading. In that way, despite being over five years old, it still feels modern, it still feels accessible, and the anecdotes that the author shares are honest admissions of some of her failures on her journey to success, which makes the overall experience that much more personal and genuine. So yes, there's lots of good. Um, but as an artist, personally, I found this book a little uncomfortable to listen to at times. Any self-motivated, and this is my personal opinion, but any self-motivated uh, financial therapy book, so which is to say self-help, personal finance, that sort of genre, this sort of genre book, is likely going to encourage you to push outside your comfort zones. And this book certainly does that. Phrases like, write down all the reasons you love money, and I'm grateful to money because fill in the blank. They do what I think the author wants them to do, or at least they did for me. They really rub me the wrong way. I don't feel like the kind of person that wants to say or do or feel that kind of um, have that kind of relationship to money. But I also see the value in changing your perspective on the role money can play in your life and challenging what the author calls false benefits from the stories we tell ourselves to maintain our identity as, as a broke person or a starving artist. They're all strategies that we use to retreat away from our fears of failure. She writes, you have to want your dreams more than you want your drama. And I think that's that's valuable perspective. I find that it's scary. As an artist, I'm comfortable taking professional risks at this stage of my career, but less comfortable taking financial ones. But I appreciate the value that she's uh, that she's taking towards it. If I'm being honest, I found portions of this book really compelling and motivational, but on the whole, it didn't exactly speak my language. Though I'm eager to hear what the panel uh, what the panel has to say. So I'll give you my uh, my three takeaways first. But first, a little game for the panel. I thought it'd be fun to to read three takeaways. Two of these takeaways are actually written by ChatGPT. Um, so I'm going to see if anyone in the panel can can tell me which uh, which of these I wrote. I wrote one, uh, and ChatGPT wrote two. 
just to be fair, I, I agree with what chat GPT wrote. So um, these could have all been written by me. Number one, your mindset plays a huge role in your financial success. Sincero encourages readers to identify and challenge their limiting beliefs about money and to cultivate a more positive and empowered mindset. Two, taking uncomfortable risks is the secret to making money. Sincero suggests that many refuse to give themselves the permission to get rich and by extension retreat into the relative safety of their comfort zones. A key to successful risk-taking is breaking your stigma against being rich. Three, action is key to achieving financial success. Sincero emphasizes the importance of taking concrete steps towards your financial goals, such as creating a budget, saving and investing wisely, and seeking out new opportunities to increase your income. What do we think? Do you think a human wrote any of those? Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to guess number two you wrote. Oh, I'm going to guess number one. I'm going to guess number one. Okay, so, okay, number, number three from three the chat. In the chat, yeah, okay. I wrote number two. So the I knew it. The first and the no, third. No. The first and the third are Chat GPT. And just to be fair, also like I had the idea to do this a while ago before the Microsoft version came out and before Chat GPT kind of basically became unusable because so many people uh have sort of opened the floodgates to using it. But I tried to write in the style of Chat GPT. So I thought I could I thought I could stump you, but I guess I didn't. No one can stump Ethan and Nicole. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I think I, I think we should open it up and see what other people thought. I know a Amy and I had a pre-meeting sort of we began our discussion of this. And so uh Yeah, I mean, I I actually um thoroughly enjoyed the book. I am a weirdo, I'll just say it. Um <laughs> I I have some alternative uh ways of thinking and philosophies. The reason I really enjoyed it, uh, I think that I kind of started my financial independence journey. Um, I have a couple of different phases where I started. So I've got like the time that I read my first book, the time that I made my first investment, and the time that I actually realized that I was on a financial independence journey. And each one of those is like three or four years apart. So it's kind of hard to say. In 2018 is when I discovered the FIRE movement. And so that was when I had a real revelation because I realized that I was trying to learn and I was being frugal and I was doing all these things, but I was also in this cyclical kind of uh, position where I would pay off. I like I became debt averse and I was paying debt off and I had bought my first uh, real estate investment, but I was also then just spending as much debt just to like fix up the house and do things. So I wasn't really on the financial independence journey in the beginning, even though I wanted to be, I didn't understand the steps, but the, what had kind of started all of that was my first book, which I think I read in 2013 or 2014. And uh, it was Rich Dad, Poor Dad uh, by Robert Kiyosaki. For me, I had kind of gotten, I think I was in my 30s by then. And I realized that I hadn't done anything right with money. I had a really bad mindset with money and that I was starting to feel my body doing a lot of manual labor with shows and production and touring. And I knew I was starting to realize it wasn't sustainable. And I said, I better figure it out because I don't have anything saved. I don't have any retirement. I don't even understand that stuff. So when I read that book, I was really prepared for it to be finance 101, like, you know, like just checklists and an, an Excel spreadsheet. And it was going to be a chore and homework for me. And I was really surprised that it was a narrative. So I kind of had my shocking aha moment that finance education doesn't always have to be like a step-by-step -step guide. 
And also around that same time, I realized personally that I did have these mindsets that were really anti-money, anti-capitalist, anti-consumer, anti—you know—money is the enemy, convenience is the enemy. These are all philosophies that I carried for a really long time, based on how I grew up and just you know a lot of personal things. We all have our our reasons why we kind of get molded into a certain mindset. My hatred of money at the time was so strong that I was never going to be able to get myself in a position where not only would I be okay in the future, but I'd also have enough to share, which was really my main motivation in that moment in time. And so I kind of had this conversation, like not in the same way as like, I love money because for me, the wording was more like, I want to have enough to share. I want to have, you know, money is a tool. Money isn't an energy. It's not good or bad. It's the person who holds it is good or bad. It's how they use it is good or bad. But money itself is it's an inanimate object, right? So I kind of went through this whole mindset, sh- mindset shift, um, you know, back at the beginning of my journey. So by the time I got to Jen Sincero's book, the woo was kind of already a part of my ethos because I have had to do so much mindset shifting in order to change. And I personally have done a 180 on my finances. I'm a lot more comfortable now. I am an investor now. I do help people now. I give education. I'm not a financial advisor, but I do you know, help people with by sharing my story. And so I loved this book because it just resonated with all the times that I had the old mindset that she talks about. And then I had the new mindset that she talks about. So to me, it resonated as like a personal journey because I've kind of been through so many of those steps. You know, it's more of a motivation on like a kind of almost like you said, self-care book um, than it is like, this is how you invest. This is how you do things. She's really kind of a cheerleader in this book, right? She's here to pump you up. And I think that if you are looking for investment strategies and what is an IRA and definitions and things like that, yet this book's not going to give that to you. So it's probably important to kind of understand that not all finance books are going to do that for us. So it did, it did kind of not present for us in that regard. And we didn't really learn a ton in that regard for beginners and investing and things like that. But I personally just loved it because I felt like I had someone else kind of repeating these mantras that at the time I had to go through on my own and I had to talk to myself on my own and there wasn't really anybody supporting me. So I questioned myself a lot and I just kind of thought I was crazy a lot of time. I was going against the grain, reevaluating some of my community and some of the people, you know, I was kind of, you know, you're told as a creative that you're a sellout if you make money. You know, this is one of the starving artists myths that we have to break through. I don't agree with that anymore. I did at the time. And that was my big struggle. I felt like I had to be a starving artist in order to uh, be true to my art. And now I understand that I can be an artist and I can be a creative and I can still be financially stable. And then I can use that as a tool to share with others. So, you know, that's just kind of what my journey was with this book. But um, I don't know any feedback or thoughts on that from other folks in the group. I, one thing I'll say, Ethan, before you jump in is like that, I, that certainly resonates with me. And I think that like one thing that this book does do a very good job of is give you plenty of inroads to access what she's trying to encourage you to do. You know, like there's lots of anecdotes that are helpful, helpful ways to access. There's lots of coaching and sort of rah-rah, lots of, lots of motivation to get you going in a particular direction. There's lots of phrases. There's lots of like quotables in this book. That if you, you know, if you write them down, if they become part of your sort of habit or they become part of your, they, they, I, I can see very quickly how they could become mantras for you. You know, one of the ones that really stuck out for me is what comes out of your mouth comes into your life. Basically, like if you continue to repeat the fact that like, 
I'm a starving artist. I'm not where I, I don't want to make money because it's going to compromise my art. If you keep saying these things over and over, your body's going to believe that. And so the, the one of the first steps towards breaking that stigma is changing how you articulate your values in public and and personally and just out in the broader world. So if if you if you change your perspective on that and you articulate it that way, that's a way to get you going in that direction. And that certainly spoke to me. I mean, I I didn't do a lot of these kind of or I haven't yet in my life done some of these exercises that she has us do at the end of every chapter of write down all the reasons that you love money. But I know I I've gone on a on a personal journey uh, with money on my, on my own and tried to have a, a a healthier perspective on it than thinking of myself as a starving artist. And I think for me, it's like, it's, it's about changing, changing the attitude in some way. It doesn't necessarily have to be exactly the way that she stipulates that it should happen. You know, the sort of like write down all these reasons, write down all the value that money places in your life. Um, but I think there are ways in which like reinforcing a mantra for yourself or reinforcing your perspective, like a healthy perspective on it is I think a really important step on that journey. Yeah. And I mean, I think that like the, like the stepping stones, like you can create your own stepping stones, like love is a very strong word, right? Just like hate is a very strong word. So maybe you start with saying like, or appreciate, right? So you can kind of like write your own rules and just use that as a, maybe one day I'll get to love, but right now I just appreciate money for X, you know, or, or I, or I like it because it lets me go travel or I appreciate that I can put food on the table for my family, things like that. Like me kind of use it in stepping stones, perhaps. Why artistic finance even exists is to like help me change my mindset. So I do think that there's a lot of validity here for changing mindset. And I also read rich dad, poor dad, like a long time ago. And that was like a huge thing for me because it wasn't pretentious. It wasn't, and it also was not like a guidebook of like how to open an IRA, how to invest in real estate. It wasn't a guidebook, but it was telling a story, a fictional story, but like a story about his own mindset shift. So I do think that mindset is like a huge part of it. And I think also, I mean, I'm three years into having this podcast and I think my mindset still hasn't switched. Like I'm still like, Ethan, why can't you like you, you still have some of that starving artist mentality, like, and, and there's a balance and I'm sort of at peace with where the balance is, but I know that I'm not Amy Deluxe yet. Like, and I'm not as organized as Carl. Like I already know these things. So this book didn't help me with the mindset because I felt like I read uh, so many other books that had more of a gentler approach or a different approach. And so while I think this book is like super huge on that part of it, and I love like how adamant her attitude is and how how else do you beat this over somebody's head to be like, don't you get the point? Like you have to change, like you have to, like as much as you want to make fun of it or whatever, it's like if you're still stuck in that old way of thinking, nothing's going to change. So I appreciate that about everything, like the way she's written the book, like very matter of factly of like, this is how I did it. But like Carl, it's like, it doesn't resonate well with me. Like it just feels wrong and weird and a little bit ingenuine in that, like, not everybody is going to have this attitude. Not everyone's going to do it this way. And so because of that, I, I feel like I had trouble connecting with it, even though I, I recognize how good it is. And Claudia, I don't want to call you out, but <laughs> you had mentioned to me, you said you were, you were like, I'm curious what other people's thoughts on this book are. And so I'm actually curious why you said that. Like, what are you, what are you thinking? <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, so I'll start off with saying I enjoyed the positive 
mindset and affirmations in the book because even though it was portrayed in a way that I personally don't connect with or I don't really follow I did find that when I finished a chapter or finished reading a section I came away feeling very positive so it it was a nice book to read and especially when you read it first thing in the morning it gets you set up for the day really nicely I did however the the thing I don't really connect with is a lot of the manifesting towards money just because it's not something that I I do it's not something that I've I guess I've kind of tried it, but for for me, my success has never come from manifesting. So when I kind of see people saying, oh, I'm going to manifest, you know, making a hundred grand in a year, it it doesn't quite link up with me. So that, that didn't really connect with me, but I can appreciate that, you know, if you're someone who has a limiting belief on how much money you can make, saying it to yourself or realizing that there is a potential for you to make that money if you figure it out is really, really positive. Um, But I found quite a lot of it was very, yeah, it was kind of that manifesting language that I, I personally just don't really connect with. So that, yeah, I was interested to hear if anyone felt the same or if anyone found it, found it quite good and found it quite insightful to think that way. Yeah, I think we definitely have mixed opinions on that. Um, You know, I'm again, the weirdo in the room that like totally is down with manifestation. But I have to say, like, I also recognize how magical that sounds. And for me, you know, my kind of relationship with manifestation is it's not a magic wand. And I think that that's kind of like that word is just kind of treated that way. You know, it's just and, you know, in some ways, I guess it is. But for me, it comes back to an energetic approach. So everything is electricity. Everything is energy. And like we were talking about earlier, if you have these limiting beliefs, then you're going to continue to kind of run into roadblocks with those limiting to beliefs. So I have kind of a more simple definition for manifestation that is really my core belief more than manifesting is, right? Um, I don't think I'm just going to think it and I'm just going to automatically make $100,000, right? I believe that it is has to be coupled with hard work, but more than anything, it's coupled with intention. Like really what manifestation is, it's intention and repeating that intention. So if I have the intention to make $100,000, I'm not going to be able to just sit there and it's going to come to me. But if I have the intention to make $100,000 and I go out and I start like, and I make lists and I say, okay, if I get like X amount of clients and if I do jobs for this price and I need like X amount of those and And then I actually go and do the steps that it takes to get that work done. Or even if you're in a nine to five and maybe you're going to go ask for a raise, maybe you're going to get a side hustle. I mean, there's just, there's a lot of ways to enact intention, but it all starts with intention and it all starts with your belief system. So that's kind of like why I don't have an adverse thought about manifestation, although I understand why people do, because it just kind of sounds like it's magic, a magic trick. And because I'm more of the mindset that it it gets coupled with intention and and action. I think of it more kind of in in that way. So kind of always bring it back to the belief system and the the limited beliefs that you can have. Now, I will say, though, there is a part of the book I had mixed feelings about. And, you know, it's when she's kind of coupling these ideas of uh, the the can-do attitude with purchasing large priced coaches, right? Like, spending like $30,000 on a coach or $50,000 on a coach. Like I've been in a couple of 
those sessions where they give you a free session. And then by the end of it, they're like, and now if you spend $20,000 to enter our program, we're going to give you all the tools. It's like, well, I came here for the tools because you said you were going to give me the tools. And Rich Dad Poor Dad actually is an entire industry of that now. Like I said, the book was very impressionable to me. I went to a Rich Dad Poor Dad session. I can't remember now, but I think it was like a four hour, like half a day session. Great tips, like great information. But at the end of it, you know, there's a shaming that comes with it. Like, well, if you don't, then you don't really believe in yourself and you don't really, you know, do, don't you really want this for yourself? Like, don't you really believe in yourself? And it's like, I do believe that people can believe in themselves and not spend 20 or $30,000 on a program. I'm sure those programs have great results. And I do believe that like when you spend a lot of money, just like, you know, Claudia, a perfect example for your business might be people might talk about the gym this way. If you spend the money on the gym, you're going to really go to the gym, right? And if you don't, then maybe you'll work out at home, but maybe you won't, right? So I think there is there is something powerful that happens when you spend money for a service and it does make you take it more seriously because it kind of gives you accountability. But also as somebody that was extremely poor growing up and didn't have resources and worked very, very hard to get out of debt. There's no way I'm going to pay someone. I'm going to, you know, I was told, just put it on your credit card. We're going to teach you how to make that money. So you pay it back. I will never put something on my credit card that I cannot pay for that month. That is just, I don't roll like that anymore. And I'm not going to get myself into that kind of trouble. And so when these groups give financial advice or they create a program where the only way that you can believe in yourself is to spend tens of thousands of dollars on their expertise, I don't really think that's very fair. Again, I'm not saying that it doesn't work. I'm just saying, I don't think it's fair. I don't think it's accessible to most people. And if you're if you are targeting people that are already in debt and already aren't good at money management yet, you are just causing a, a problem for them. So, you know, she does talk about that. And and I like I said, I have mixed feelings about that. And I don't agree with that. And when you couple that with manifesting, I feel like that's where people could get in trouble because they're believing they're like, oh, a cheerleader and they're hyped. And then they get themselves in trouble, right? Because, well, now I can't pay off the $30,000 because it didn't work for me as well as it worked for that guy over there. I think when you couple those ideas, that's when we start getting into a little bit of dangerous territory. Amy, so I have also gone to the Rich Dad, Poor Dad seminar, (laughs) which resulted at the end with, yes, shaming of anyone who wasn't going to pursue the program. But I will also say that I've had like uh, a guest on the show called Matt Pacheni who paid, I don't know what he paid, but let's say $50,000 for a coaching session. And he's filed it through and he's now doing very well and doing multi-million real estate deals. I had somebody else on the show, Damian Lupo. He runs sort of a mastermind sort of situation like that in which people pay tens of thousands of dollars in order to be a part of it. I'm only saying that while I never anticipate doing that, I do see a lot of validity because I see a lot of success with people who do that. Going back to like the woo factor and the higher intelligence, that is also something that I can relate to like zero. Like I just, it's sort of like if I hold it in my hand and I try to put this finger through it, it's like, I can imagine a world in which my finger can go through my hand. Like I can imagine that, but it will never work. Like it just won't work. And that's how my brain works. It's like, I totally understand the manifestation. I totally understand that the mindset switch has to happen. I totally understand that there's a lot of money in this world and there's a lot of industries in this world and that anybody in any industry can make a bunch of that money because it's there to get spread around and we give meaning and value to money. So I get all that, but I just can't, I don't know, my brain doesn't go that way. But I do see the realistic ways of people who are like, money is a puzzle. We figured it out for ourselves and we will give you 
the pieces to put that puzzle together. And so I actually do think had I paid a bunch of money to continue on with the Rich Dad course, that my life could take a whole different path. And I could totally be doing well in real estate and stuff like that. And so I do think there actually is value in that. However, like, I don't want to do that. Like, I want to be a lighting designer. But then figuring that out for myself on how do I put this attitude into lighting design and like, how do I, do I rent out gear? Like, where do I follow the money tree here? And do I want to, but then that, that that's back to like how important the, the mindset shift is. Like I haven't gone to that of like, I want to make a bunch of money in lighting design. Like, and that's what I want to do. Cause there's pathways to do that, but I'm like still not choosing to do it. Yeah. I mean, I completely agree with that. And, um, you know, and I think it brings up a really great point of, again, going back to the gap or the division between money and creative industries. You know, one of the hardest things for me still to this day has always been thinking of my creativity and my creative endeavors as a business. Because once you say business, it's no longer like flourishing and fun and like we're using paintbrushes and splatter. Like I'm also, I can't even say am because it's been so long, but I was a painter for a very long time. I'm trying to bring it back. But in my early, you know, early 20s or something, when I really did, uh, you know, before I became got into lighting, I was a graphic designer. And before that, I was a visual artist. And I literally just wanted to be a successful visual artist. And I, and I couldn't figure it out. But I like I had a lot of determination for a while. But I couldn't sell a painting to save my life because as soon as I put a, a, a dollar tag on it, I felt like it devalued the work. And I, I had this mindset that if I asked for a lot of money for this and or I started, you know, treating it like a business that it devalued because it was such an emotional creation for me, like making paintings was always just the left brain, right brain thing. It just it wasn't work. It was just very freeing and liberating. And as soon as I had to turn it into work, it just, it didn't work for me. Eventually I figured it out. Right. I mean, I, I did switch the path of how I make money on my creativity, but I don't have as much of an issue with the word business and, and the concept of business. But I, you know, a lot of that's societal. I wanted to be a visual artist. I wanted nothing more than to go to uh, the school of visual arts in New York. That was my dream. When I was in high school, I wanted to go there so badly. And I just, Every adult in my life was just like, you can't make money as an artist. You can't do that. You should go be an engineer. You, you have to be a, an engineer or a lawyer, you know, and I think the times have changed a little bit. You know, I'm aging myself again, but um, I think that there's, a, there's ways for us to see pa uh, paths to success in creative arts, not to the extent where you're a lawyer or a doctor, an engineer. I love that you like came back to, but I want to be a lighting designer. And I think that now your next step would be, I want to be a lighting designer and I want to be financially successful. And what do I need to do to make that a reality? Right. So like, how do I create more income from being a lighting designer? And then you don't have to go on all these other, all these other tangents to, to be a real estate investor, or, you know, things like that. You can just figure out your own design, your own path. Taking a break from the episode to mention our Patreon page. What I forgot to mention during book club is that Carl is a patron of Artistic Finance. So every month he gives us a little bit of his hard-earned money in order to keep this show on the air. Also, I saw two of our book club attendees this month are also patrons. So thank you not only for being patrons, but participating in book club. To the rest of the patrons, whether you're on the monthly or yearly subscription, thank you for supporting me and the show. 
Now, besides being somebody who is supportive of the live event community, what is in it for patrons? The perks of being a patron are that you get a private podcast feed with all bonus materials and the early releases of each episode. Coming up, I have a lot of interviews that have been recorded and are in the queue waiting to be edited together, so there will be more and more early releases coming into the early release feed. Lined up, we have Paul Taswell, the costume designer of Hamilton, who explains how costume designers get paid on Broadway and also for films. He's currently designing the Wicked movie and previously designed Spielberg's West Side Story. We also have an episode about pricing of a previs station with lighting designers Luther Frank and Kent Sprague of the Sovereign Candle Collective. We recorded that in person at their New York office. And we have an upcoming episode on how to produce an Actors Equity Showcase in New York City. Now that's a very specific thing which is only allowed in the city, but it's a great way to get Equity members involved in an off-off-Broadway production. That is with artistic director Rob Schneider. Those are all heading to the patron early release podcast feed in the next week or so. If you'd like access to them, please join up as a patron. And you can do that at patreon.com slash artistic finance. And now, back to the show. Peek into my own brain. It's like, I think part of me is like, I'm just going to get a, re- a big show and it's going to pay me additional weekly compensation and royalties for like, 10 years. Like that's all I need is just a 10 year show that's going to run. I think that's where my mindset still is, but where it needs to shift is how can I take artistic finance and monetize artistic finance while still allowing me to be a designer? Or do I go full into artistic finance, which would be like very fulfilling to me, like wildly to like help the industry, help other people, help people like me who maybe couldn't switch their mindset quite or, you know, cause like I've, I've been reading books like this for like 10 years, but I haven't pursued any of the paths. One thing that I will say, Ethan, is as somebody who is in a very similar position as you're in living in New York, not yet having kids is like what changed for me was the process of having kids. Like I, I suddenly had one of the things that is, I think, very uh, specifically true about theater artists we get very focused on our work as being our life. And I think that coupled with this, like what I will, what what I sort of perceive as like this American work ethic of living to work versus a more European work, et- like life ethic of working to live is that being an American working in theater arts without, I mean, personally, this is true for me without like a lot of other sort of like hobbies or interests. I devoted a lot of my time and energy towards like, the art or the practice of making that art as being sort of the central focus of my life and the process of having kids, the process of having a family, the process of like needing to open my, my frame to include more people, more life, more love made it at least for me more possible to sort of like approach work as more of a business than I had before. And and I think everybody kind of goes, you know, like, like, I think we've all recognized, like everybody kind of goes on that journey for themselves, like whatever that sort of journey is going to be is going to be unique to each person. But I think what is true, I think what I've in, in a lot of the books I've read and a lot of the anecdotes that I've heard both on artistic finance, but also in a lot of other places for that is that like, having kids undergoing large sort of transformational life changes, like those are opportunities to really like widen your perspective and say like, what's valuable to me Uh, and defining what success is for your family. Um, Having a successful family, having a successful family life is, is a priority for me. 
what are how can I take the tools that I already possess as a lighting designer, as all the different skills that I have, how can I take those tools and use them to achieve the sort of larger goals that I that I might have? Yeah, I've noticed that like as soon as we found out we were gonna have a baby, right? Immediately there's something like innate that is not a conscious decision that I've made, but it's like, oh, I now have to figure this out. Like I had never planned on teaching. And then suddenly I find myself applying for teaching jobs like right and left. And it's like, well, that's a complete shift from what you've been doing for the last 10 years. But then I sort of think to myself and it's like, why I've been, I've, I've known about these personal finances books for 10 years. Why did I not choose to do something? And, and in a way you could argue, well, Ethan, you, you did choose cause you chose to have a baby and therefore then you chose like then, but I think there's part of me that's trying to figure out why I can't, like, why is it so hard to just tell yourself? I mean, Claudia, again, with exercising, it's like, we all know to eat healthy. We all know to exercise. What has to change that makes your like attitude? That's the part where I'm, I'm sort of like, well, it's the baby that's making me change these things, but why couldn't I have just done that before? Like, why didn't I like, <laughs> I have a question for you though, because I feel like you have done some things, right? You, you do invest in the market. I mean, were you doing that 10 years ago? Is that just something you've always done? Or is that something you've kind of started to do? Okay, you're right. I have been doing that for 10 years too. <laughs> but but I just feel like I haven't taken anything to the, to the next level. And I think is that thing about getting outside of your comfort zone. And Claudia mentioned this on our episode about exercise, because she's like, well, what don't you like about exercise? And I was like, well, because it's sweaty, and it's gross, and I, it hurts my arms. And she's like, yeah, it hurts everyone's arms. It makes everybody sweaty. Like nobody likes that part of it. Um, but going outside of the comfort zone, it's like, okay, I've been investing, like I've been putting money in retirement for 10 years, but now I feel like there's something, there's like a bigger shift than that. I've been in a 10 year comfort zone. I figured out how to make a living in theater and entertainment and lighting, and I've done it. And now I'm going to continue doing it, but I'm doing it a different way that I feel like I have more control of. But I also did want to read Kit put in the chat box. Same with not relating to the manifesting, but I can understand having a positive mindset to basically encourage yourself to apply for the better paying job or start the new business or whatever, kind of just setting goals and working towards them, like Amy said, having intention. And so I do think that is a huge merit to this book, which is like, yes, you have to set goals because if you're not setting goals, like nothing's ever going to happen. Like if you're just going at the whims of this and that, and I want to be an artist and I want to do that, like that's totally cool. And maybe you'll get lucky. Like I think I see a lot of successful artists that I won't say get lucky because they've all put in time and effort and all that, but they have had that timing, that break, that situation where it's like, oh, wow, I somehow did my art and I got paid for it and it's awesome. But I feel like that was outside of their control a little bit. So I do think the merit is set it, setting goals. Like if you don't know where you're going, like you're just going to continue on. So making making the choice is at least a good start. I think what you're speaking to a little bit is like the the number of times this book ref references universal intelligence. That the definition of what universal intelligence means is probably going to vary for each person. You know, it could be spirituality, it could be fate, it could be essentially is the universe is providing something for you without you knowing, but it is kind of up you, it is sort of on you, the individual to sort of put yourself on that path with a certain level of like faith or trust or something that, you know, what you seek or the door that you're seeking to open will be there for you. You know, it's a little bit of sort of like 
you know, jumping and hoping that the parachute manifests itself on your back on the way down or something like that. But I, I think that to me, it's like, I, I think this book relies a lot on the reader having a relationship to universal intelligence. And for me, it was like, I, I think I didn't come into this book with like really thinking a lot about universal intelligence as a sort of spiritual, but I think I, I definitely recognize that there are there have been opportunities that have shown up for me that I've been like, that I felt lucky in that sense, or like, I, I feel like I worked hard and I achieved something and and I don't know where that came out, came out of. Uh, maybe that was luck. Maybe it was the, you know, the universe speaking to me. I don't know. But the, I think the book kind of does depend on the reader having some sort of a relationship to whatever she's meaning by universal intelligence. Yeah, I think I agree with you. I mean, I, I didn't really enjoy seeing kind of that word, because I don't really subscribe to that personally. Um, you know, I don't really think there's a whatever in the background making decisions for me. And I'm kind of uh, working towards that. And I totally respect anyone that does. And like you said, it covers a, a full range of how people see that. Um, even though I'm a believer in like the law of attraction and manifest manifesting and things. Again, for me, that kind of just comes back to energy and intention. I wish I could remember who said this because I heard it in an interview um, and she said, but it kind of comes back to that idea of universal intelligence or intention, you know, however we want to umbrella that term, depending on what your beliefs are. But she said, if you are going to the bus stop and you're late and you see the bus and you miss the bus and you did nothing to get on that bus, then you don't know if that was your bus or not. But if you are running late to the bus stop and you see the bus and you run as fast as you can to get to that bus and you still miss the bus, then that bus wasn't your bus. And I really liked that because I feel like it really, no matter what you believe, it shows that if you don't put the effort in, then that thing is not going to come to you. You're not going to get that thing. Maybe you'll get it later at another time or another way, but maybe not. To me, it always comes back to that that energy and intention again, because we might just be a science experiment and we happen to be able to create language and, and talk to each other. You know, who knows? <laughs> or, you know, whatever. I, I don't, I don't want to get it too deep into some wild other kinds of philosophies. But no matter what you believe, if you don't put any energy in like and you don't take responsibility for the direction of your life, like I just don't think that uh, you're going to be able to achieve and rely on. Uh, you know, that outcome. Yeah, actually, that makes me ask this question. I guess, Carl, I'll ask you this. Is there any actionable advice that you got out of this book? I mean, I would I would have to go back to my notes on that one. Uh, the, the scrupulous notes that I took for myself. I mean, what I the some of the actionable, I think I took actionable or um, I don't know if it's actionable, because it's not actually like, like a step by step guide towards like, do this, do that, that, that resonated for me. What, what resonated for me were some of the, like the phrases for, you know, like there were, there were certain concrete phrases that just like, because of their repetition, they started to sink in for me. Like, uh, what you focus on, you create more of. There was a sort of, there was a, there was something that happened, like uh, a phrase that happened really in passing that really spoke to me when she was talking about starting a business. And she said, they say a plane uses 40% of its fuel at takeoff. And to me, it's like, for some reason, in the time I was listening to that at, you know, two times speed in the car, it was like, oh, yeah, right. That's why it's so difficult to get going because, you know, you, it require you, you require so much energy to begin something. And to me, to having the parallel towards like, oh, talking about how a plane uses 40% of its fuel at takeoff, it's like, that's a really concrete parallel for me to think about. Like, 
when something is challenging for me, when it's having to do with business or it's having to do like something that I have to get going, having something to sort of fall back to and be like, oh yeah, that was like a really helpful like metaphor to thinking to to thinking about how to visualize how things can be challenging at the beginning stage, at the early stages of the launch of something. There's this other phrase that she uses a lot, or that she used at least a couple times of we're so attached to the unhelpful familiar. And I think to me, this is there's this sense of like, I can see myself retreating back to some of the things, some of the the ways that I visualize that I think about the world or practices that I do that I that I know are kind of unhealthy for my long-term progress, but I'm so familiar with them. I'm so used to them like being there. And it's comforting to retreat back to that. Having a book call them out, having an author sort of call that out is like, we're so used to that unhelpful familiar. And and part of what I feel like she's trying to do in this book is like springboard you out of it. So it's weird. I think in a way, like, and I haven't read any of the other badass books, um, but this being the second, the first one was like a huge success. And I think has a lot more to like visual, I think thinking more about like the large sense of like being a badass at life. And to me, that's what I sort of took away from this book, less financial takeaways and more just kind of like general life takeaways. Like I tried to think about them, you know, as a parent, what are some of the ways in which the practices that she talks about detach money a little bit from it and think more about like achieving some level of success at parenting or success in whatever we have ahead for us in the, you know, in the future, work-related things, that sort of stuff. To me, those were kind of the more concrete takeaways, but I, I agree. Like I, I didn't personally have any sort of actionable advice that I took away from it. Though I do love that you pointed out the 40% of fuel being used for the startup because like early on in artistic finance, I would always, I had a question actually baked in called the 80-20 rule, which is, you know, that like you put 80% of your time and energy into making 20% of your money and you put 20% of your time and your energy and somehow that makes you 80% of the money. And so I asked people like, you know, where, where in your own life does that apply? And that, that rule has shown up in a lot of self-help books and a lot of finance books and stuff. I think it's a really good, like concrete way to look at your own layout, like whatever your life is in energy and be like, oh, wow. So I could continue on doing exactly what I'm doing, lighting design, but I should find out where I'm putting 20% of my lighting design work and getting bigger paychecks versus where am I putting 80% of my time and getting tiny little paychecks. Well, I just wanted to say that Kit in the chat box had talked about actionable advice from the book, and they said, quit the job you're miserable and hate. Yes, 100%. I mean, I, I agree with all this too, and I love, and I think that, you know, even to to Kit's point, and uh, it kind of comes back to the plane as well, because we, when we kind of sit in that comfort zone and then it takes so much energy, right? It takes so 40% of energy to get the plane off the ground. But then once you do, then we already know this phrase, ride the momentum. You know, that's where it comes from. Because once you get it going, then the momentum kind of keeps propelling you. I don't know if you guys are familiar with Mel Robbins, but Mel Robbins, uh, you know, is one of these kind of coaches as well that, um, you know, helps people like kind of get past that, those difficult points. She says, if you, you know, like when you're tired and you can't get out of bed and you don't want to go to bed and you push the snooze button, you go back to bed. She says, five, four, three, two, one. You just, you count it down. And if this is an ultimatum, you know, you have no choice. You just, it's five, four, three, two, one. And then you do it. Right. And so again, with the 40% or like this, like finite amount of time, it's all just getting, it just takes so much more energy to do the thing. But then once you do it, I mean, I know I've done this with situations in my life that I've waited and I've waited and I've been intimidated and I didn't do it, but then I finally did do it. And I'm like, 
wow, everything's so much better. Like, why did I wait so long to do that? Why didn't I do that sooner? Like we can really kind of work against ourselves sometimes with these fear blocks or intimidation or even laziness, like whatever, or just like not understanding a thing and, you know, just being afraid of it or being confused by it. And sometimes if you just push through it, you know, if you quit that job you hate and you go get another one or you start your own business and then you're doing your thing, you know, like it, it can have a lot of payoffs. And I think that it also comes back to like the book we read last month. Lillian talks a lot about assigning value to the things that you are going to like put your money towards. Right. So if we assign, like Carl brought up the parenting, like if we assign, I want to be a better parent, it doesn't have to just be, I want to make more money. I want to be successful at money. It's, I want to be a better parent. So I want to be able to pay for my kids college. And so in order to do that, I'm going to like manage my finances this way. Right. So as long as your value is associated with what am I actually making the money for? not just to be rich and glitzy, but like maybe I actually have a value that I need to like put money towards. I think that would really help as well with that mindset shift. Yeah. I, I think that's what the the book was very good at when, um, when it does talk about manifesting and stuff, you know, kind of saying those words aloud or writing it down or saying it in your head and overcoming that huge block to make you do something that you're scared of. I think that that was something that I enjoyed about the book because it, it just reminded me of, of a few things that I've put limiting um, beliefs on for myself and her saying all this stuff even though I was I was eye rolling a little bit it made me go oh actually she's got a good point where you know if you say it it's one step closer to you actually reaching that goal. Claudia for your work I, I'm assuming you must run into this a lot when you're asking clients, like, what are your goals? What are your concrete goals? Like, for, it, it, there's a process in that goal articulation that I think is probably very healthy that I think some of us, and or at least speaking as a lighting designer, like, I don't really think about those kind of goals. I, I don't have to articulate them out loud in the same way that you might with a personal trainer, you know, seeking, you know, whatever it is, whatever your personal goals are, if it's weight loss, or if it's, you know, being able to be comfortable at the beach, or if it's being able just to like have a just general healthier outlook on life. There's something about that goals articulation, I think is a really helpful step towards any sort of progress. And I think it's very easy to retreat away from goals. Sometimes goals can feel scary, can feel a little like, uh, once I say it, then I have to do it. And so maybe I'll just stay back here without making my goals. It feels safer and more comfortable back here. But it does feel like the process of goal articulation is really valuable. I'm Right. I mean, I'm assuming you must encounter this a lot with hugely. Yeah. Yeah. And what, one of the, the questions I, I love asking clients or anyone who's talking through their goals is when they say they can't do something, I ask why. So when someone says, Oh, I'll never be able to lose 10 pounds or I'll never be able to feel good on the beach, I ask why. They, they kind of go, Oh, I've never actually thought of it like that. But it breaks down to someone what their limiting beliefs are, and then we work on overcoming them. So yeah, I, I run into that a lot. Guys, this was such an incredible meetup. Thank you so much. We've just got a couple minutes left. So I want to go ahead and thank you all for attending and give out our prizes this month. So everyone that's attending is going to get an LDG baseball cap. So please send us your shipping address and information uh, so that we can get that out to you. you. You can message me anyway at Artistic Finance on Instagram or link Ethan Simon LinkedIn or email at artisticfinancepodcast at gmail.com. 
Ethan, will you put your email in the chat and then everyone can uh, copy it so they can send our shipping address. And then we also have a $20 book club, a $20 gift card for a book. Um, And I'm going to go ahead and pick that name out of hat. I'm picking Kit because I really liked Kit that you said, quit the job that's making you miserable, that you hate and do the thing that is going to get your motivation going. That is such great advice. I know it's easier said than done. I know that we all have, we need that paycheck. But make a plan, right? Make a plan and do what really drives you. Follow your true compass. I just thought that was great advice. So sorry to sneak that one on you, Ethan, but I'm picking Kit. (laughs) (laughs) So Kit, please reach out to us so we can give you your $20 gift card for the book. One final thing I'll say, because I forgot to say in the beginning, I know everyone's wondering where the van life for Nomad is uh, broadcasting in from. I'm in Lake Havasu. Right now, I got the. This is not a background. This is real palm trees, <laughs> and I drove through snow and storms and hail and rain and crazy weather. It's snowing in Southern California, even down in Irvine at sea level. I mean, it's been wild. So I finally made it to the desert. <laughs> Wait, okay. I don't know where Lake Havasu is. I don't know my geography. Where is it? It's in Arizona. It's in Arizona. It's right across the border from uh, California around the same parallel as LA. It's a little LA oasis. A lot of people come here and, and it's like, it's literally in the middle of the desert. It's just for, for either. I came from Grand Canyon one time. I came from uh, Southern California this time and it is just nothing but desert. And then all of a sudden there's a massive lake. It's incredible. It's, it's a really cool spot. It's a little desert oasis. Well, the background looks amazing. And if anybody wants to watch this on YouTube, do just to see the background. (laughs) Yeah. So I just want to say really quickly, KO iPad Pro in the chat box said, I really appreciate having this community to reflect on these two topics. So many of these sentiments echo my own, and it's a great time in my life to have this resource. Thank you all. Which I just thought was a very nice thing to say. Thank you. Yeah, we're so glad to be here with you. Yeah, I want to thank everybody for being here and say that if you want to find out information for the next month and if you want to sign up for the newsletter, you can do that at artisticfinance.com slash book club. We're going to do this same thing one month from today on March 26th, same time, same computer, wherever you are. Um, The book is going to be Get Good With Money, 10 Simple Steps to Become a Financially Whole by Tiffany Alish, who is the budget Nista. And our presenter is going to be Emily Crimmins, who is a photo booth success manager. So that's all I have. Uh, thank you, everybody. And we'll see you next time. That's it for this week's episode. My takeaways are shift your mindset. Get out of victim mode and into badass mode, which is taking control of what you want financially and finding a way to get it. You don't have to be a starving artist. We've said it a million times on the show, you can create art and make money. A combination of manifestation and hard work can help you achieve your financial goals, or at least accomplish things that are in your control. We think of manifestation as woo or ethereal, but the reality is you have to have the vision first in order to take concrete steps of accomplishing something. All of us on the call are working to close that gap between money and creatives. It can be hard to treat your art like a business, but doing so allows you to earn the money, which allows you to continue making art successfully. I loved Amy's bus story example. If you see your bus coming, but you don't try to make it, you're never going to know if that was supposed to be your bus, aka if you see your bus and you run to make it, but you still miss it, then you know what? It wasn't your bus. 
In other words, if you don't put in the effort, you're not going to get it. Intention and energy are critical. I loved the actionable advice from the panel. Carl said we're so attached to the unhelpful familiar, which means that we have to be uncomfortable if we're going to change anything. Amy brought up a point actually hailing back to last month's book, and that was to associate value with what you're using money for. If you have money, you can use that money to put it toward a good cause, to put it toward your own retirement, to put it toward things that are important to you instead of not having any and not being able to put value into those things. Claudia brought up the point that when you say that you can't do something, take a step back and ask yourself why. It'll help you focus and reshift the limitations that you're setting on yourself. Kit said, quit the job if it's miserable. Yes, you do need a job for money, but if you aren't happy, you are the only one in the world who can go get a new job and leave the one that you're not happy in. That falls in line with keeping yourself in victim mode. You have to get out of that because you're the only one that controls your destiny. Those are my takeaways. Do you have any to add? So if so, send them to artisticfinancepodcast at gmail.com. I check that email on a regular basis, and I'd love to throw your thoughts into a future episode. A note for next month's book. Artistic Finance is a partner of bookshop.org, and the reason that is is because they partner with local bookstores and small businesses, aka places that I like to support. So now if you use our affiliate link, we will get 10% of that sale coming back to Artistic Finance. So if you aren't getting the book from the library and you end up purchasing it, please consider doing so via our affiliate link, which you can find at artisticfinance.com slash book club. I also want to thank the Lighting Design Group for providing our swag for the attendance prizes. Everybody on the call is going to get one of those. Speaking of LDG, Dennis Size and Cheryl from that company will be joining Artistic Finance for an episode on budgeting the lighting design of a TV broadcast. I don't have a release date for that episode, but if you're interested, be sure to follow or subscribe to Artistic Finance on your podcast feed or over on YouTube so that you're notified when that gets released. And wait for it, Dennis Size is also a patron of Artistic Finance. Dennis is one of our oldest patrons. He has supported us since January of 2021 and just passed his two-year anniversary. Dennis, thanks so much for supporting the show, not only as a patron, but as a guest and providing our prizes for this week. I'll also say that I'm not going to disclose what level of patron Dennis is, but in the past two years, he has been at different levels of support. And saying that to mention that we have tiers as low as $3 a month, which is $36 a year, or we have tiers that go up to $25 a month, or even higher if you want to partner with the show. Saying all that to say that there's a level for everyone, and it's adjustable at any time. So thank you to Dennis and all the patrons who are intentional in their giving each month and prioritize artistic finance as part of that. If you're listening and want to get involved, and join these superstars who have kept this show going as we approach our third year of broadcasts, you can join up at patreon.com slash artisticfinance. Thank you to everyone who attended the book club. 
I absolutely love seeing everybody's faces because normally I just publish an interview without seeing any of the listeners. So that's my favorite part of the book club. That's it for today. Until next week, break a leg. Thank you for listening to Artistic Finance. Make sure to subscribe. To access our show notes, transcripts, or resources, go to artisticfinance.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by Artistic Finance. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.